Welcome to the podcast of The Plague Year. I'm your host, Terry Shoemaker. Podcast for The Plague Year is a deeper dive into contributions made to the Journal of The Plague Year, a project of Arizona State University. Available online, the archive allows anyone to submit artifacts regarding life during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mining the many photos, videos, reflections, and other submissions to the archive, this podcast, Podcast of the Plague Year, selects some interesting topics and explores the world of the pandemic life. Join us as we journey across the world to see how the pandemic has influenced the daily lives of people everywhere. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Podcast of the Plague Year. I'm your host, Terry Shoemaker. In our last episode, we spotlighted pandemic realities for indigenous peoples living on reservations in the Southwest. In this episode, we again partnered with Arizona State University's Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict to focus our attention on vulnerable populations in the Southwest. The center received funding from the Henry Luce Foundation to provide rapid relief during the pandemic. As part of the Rapid Relief Program, the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict is collaborating with a Journal of the Plague Year and the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communications to raise awareness about marginalized communities that were assisted during the pandemic. Joining this Southwest Stories project, we at the Podcast of the Plague Year were granted the opportunity to record interviews with two organizations assisting refugees that have been relocated to Arizona. For those unaware, refugees are those who have been forced to flee their own country because of a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, or political opinion. Almost three-quarters of a million refugees have been resettled in the United States since 2008 and often come with very little resources to begin life anew once resettled. Life for refugees during resettlement comes with hope, but also the struggles to learn a new language, navigate new employment and educational systems, and integrate into a new society. It is easy to imagine how a pandemic could intensify already existing struggles. To learn more about life for refugees during the COVID-19 pandemic, I spoke with Connie Phillips, CEO of Lutheran Social Services of the Southwest. I'm here with Connie Phillips, the CEO of Lutheran Social Services of the Southwest. Hi, Connie. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for speaking with us today about, you know, the the situation for refugees in the in the Southwest, particularly Arizona right now. Can you tell me a little bit about Lutheran Social Services of the Southwest and what the organization does? Sure. Lutheran Social Services of the Southwest has been providing services to uh, vulnerable people for the last 50 years. Our mission is to uh, stabilize people during times of crisis to build a foundation from which people can move forward and to respect dignity. So we, uh, as I said, have been doing our services for 50 years. We work in four different areas of service. We provide emergency services. We provide services to people who are older and who have disabilities. We provide um, services to families and children. And we've been doing refugee resettlement and working with asylum seekers. For our listeners, can you explain a little bit, and I'm sure it's a fairly complex process, but refugee resettlement, what does it entail? Refugee resettlement is a very specific aspect of immigration. 
It is a humanitarian response that is part of the um, global response to terror and to famine and to war. When individuals have to leave a country, then uh, they find themselves in a new country. If it, if it is not possible for them to return to their home country, then they can gain refugee status through the United Nations. And then once they receive refugee status, they can be resettled to a third country of asylum. The United States is one of several countries in the world that accept refugees who are needing to start new lives because they're just never going to be able to return to their homes. And so am I correct in saying that they're given 90 days of funding and services initially? Yes. So the way that the program works, it it is a work-first self-sufficiency program. So refugees who enter the United States are, first of all, the most vetted people that ever set foot on the, on the United States. And so it's a very safe program. It's also enjoyed wide bipartisan support. And uh, when they arrive, they are met by an organization that agrees to assist them as they're getting settled into the United States. So when they come here, we have already secured an apartment for them. We furnished it. It's got food in the refrigerator. It's ready for them to receive them. And we start day two after they get here on um, helping them to get established. And so they have to begin working right away. They also uh, do pay back their cost of their travel. So that isn't even free. So they all begin to work and they work very hard and they, um, they build new lives. The, the initial 90 days when they come, um, we cover their rent and uh, we work with them pretty intensely. But the idea is that they are working within 90 days and able to support themselves and their families. How has the pandemic affected uh, your organization and the services you provide? And then more specifically, how have you seen that the pandemic has affected refugee peoples in, in the Southwest? The pandemic has had a profound effect on the individuals that we serve uh, in all of our programs. Uh, It's also, of course, changed everything in the way we do everything here in the organization. Refugee resettlement was always a very group-oriented activity. We, We worked individually with the family to help them find jobs, but the acculturation all of the the, uh, the skills classes and the orientation and was always done in group format. So we've had to retool everything we've done. We also are paid based on the number of people who arrive. And given the pandemic and the, um, the moratorium on travel that was in place for many months, no one came. So we had imp- a financial impact as well as we had to re- rethink the way we do all of our services. As far as the, the, the impact on the refugees themselves, many of whom have not been in the United States for very long at all, it had a profound impact in several areas, employment, their housing security, their health, education for their children, and food security. All of those things were impacted. Obviously, many of those follow from employment. When the pandemic occurred and people were sent home and businesses closed, Most refugees, because of their English skills, are usually very limited if they can speak English at all. That it means that they mostly go to work in the hospitality industry, in restaurant kitchens, service organizations. They're doing work that uh, doesn't need language skills. 
their industry was impacted. And so many of them lost their jobs right away. And they don't have the sophistication or the skill sets to be able to apply for unemployment, which was difficult for English speaking and people who can read and have technology skills. So they really struggled. We looked at, actually did a surveying of our, the folks we had been working with, 44% of them lost their jobs initially. So employment was, was really difficult. And because they work low wage jobs, that means that their housing security was immediately threatened because if they, they weren't getting paid, they weren't able to pay their rent. And as you may know, the housing uh, subsidies were very difficult to, to navigate and to be able to secure. Thankfully, we did not have anyone lose housing, but it was quite an, an effort on the part of the case management staff to work with the refugees to apply for subsidies. You know, their health was, was impacted. Many of these people, of course, the work that they do, they don't have sick time. So if they were able to work, they needed to go to work. They couldn't stay home if they, you know, were concerned or to stay home with their children. They, they had to keep working if they were, uh, they were able to. And many of them live in very uh, cramped apartments, multi-generational. So, you know, isolation was difficult as well. The children who are going to school when schools went online, that, that created a huge barrier for our refugees because they don't have the skill sets. Their parents certainly don't have the skill sets. They don't have many of them Wi-Fi at home. And so especially as before the schools were, you know, making sure that everyone could get online, many of our students, our refugee students, weren't able to go to school. And because many of them depend on the school for their food security, again, until the schools really were able to get that uh, figured out, we were providing food boxes and helping refugees get signed up for food stamps. So it has been a very challenging time. Yeah, it it sounds like it's an all-encompassing effect. Do you have a sense for your organization, what are the the ethnicities or the nationalities of the the people you've been working with primarily? We work primarily with people um, from the African continent. So Congolese are one of the larger groups that we work with. We also work with people from Afghanistan. We work with people from some of the Eastern countries. And in the midst of uh, the challenges that your organization has faced and, and the people that you assist have faced, are there, are there stories of encouragement or hope during this pandemic time that you could share with us? You know, the thing that, that has impressed me the most about working in refugee resettlement, and I'm fairly new to this field. I uh, have been doing social services for 30 some years now, but the last five have been my first experience with working with refugees. They are resilient by nature. They are the most resilient people. And they just try and work so hard at everything. There was a a young woman in our Tucson area. One of the things that we do in Tucson is school support. So we are assisting refugee youth. And one of the young women who had not been in the United States very long, all of a sudden was trying to go online school. And uh, she was really struggling and no one else in her family had any idea what to do. And so every morning she would text with our staff member or she would she would FaceTime with her and show her the screens. Our staff member would help her get into her class. And then when that class was over, she'd have to she'd have to get our staff member on the phone again and and help do FaceTime 
and texting to try to get into the next class. And this went on, you know, for the first couple, three weeks of class until she finally got the hang of it and was able to do it without that assistance. You know, how many teenagers would have just gone, oh, can't get on. Guess I won't go to school today. But this woman, uh, this young woman, you know, was so committed to her education and learning because she was the one in her family who was learning to speak English. And she felt that responsibility. And so she had to be in school. Where have you seen or have you seen faith or religion or spirituality in these times being helpful or are people more interested in economics and kind of setting aside faith, religion, spirituality at this moment? No, I think that the faith aspect is critical. Where I have really seen uh, the role of the faith community has been in how the faith community has just surrounded the people we serve, surrounded them with extra care. Yeah. Speaking of people assisting your organization and, and assisting those that you serve, if someone's listening right now and are interested in helping, how could they do so? You know, go on our website, uh, of course, lss-sw.org, and you can go to how, how you can help section. We're, we are continuing to look for volunteers. We are preparing for the holiday season, and we need a, about 2,500 gifts for all of our programs. So we're collecting towels and soaps for our seniors. We're collecting games and toys for our family resource centers. We're collecting household items and toys for our refugee program and uh, collecting baskets for our foster homes that care for children with developmental disabilities. And one of the best ways is help spread the word. We have a virtual tour, what we call our come and see tour. It takes a half an hour. We'd love to be able to host people to come learn more about Lutheran Social Services. Connie, thank you so much for your work and, uh, and thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for the opportunity. After speaking with Connie, I spoke with Dominic Braham, Executive Director of Refugees and Immigrants Community for Empowerment, or RICE. I'm here with Dominic Braham, who is the Executive Director of Refugees and Immigrants Community for Empowerment, also known as RICE in Arizona. Dominic, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining with us. Uh, to begin with, I was, I was just hoping that you could share a little bit about your organization, specifically kind of what's the mission of the organization. Yes, I'll, uh, I'll start from the beginning on how the organization started. So a few former refugees and immigrants uh, who were established in Arizona came together and started to pull their money together to help current immigrants and refugees with, you know, assistance. Um, and so they did that kind of just as a group, giving back to their community. Um, and then 2017, they formed a nonprofit called RICE, and uh, they were the founding board of directors. And so now RICE is an organization, a 501c3 nonprofit that helps current and former refugees and immigrants in Phoenix. Our mission is to empower refugees and immigrants. And, and when I say empower, I mean economic empowerment. We're helping them to learn English 
English and helping them to share their culture and their community to build relationships with, you know, U.S. citizens to support them in becoming a U.S. citizen and just advocating for, you know, policies that that empower uh, refugees and immigrants. And just very briefly, I know, I know it can get quite complicated. When people are resettled, they get what, like 90 days of uh, resources and then expected to after 90 days to be able to sustain themselves? That's correct. Um, 90 days to help with rent and food assistance. And then, uh, you know, they have counselors who help them to find a job. But then after those 90 days, they need to be self-sustaining. You can imagine how hard that is. I mean, a college student who was born in America, you know, finding a job after they graduate in college is, in 90 days is kind of difficult. I know I have gone 90 days without having a job. And so imagine somebody who is just learning the language and has experienced a whole nother way of life trying to do all of that in 90 days. It's very hard. And, and over the last, uh, I guess, since the organization has been founded there in, in Phoenix, are there particular groups that have been settled in the Phoenix or greater Phoenix area? Oh, yes. Um, so they, it kind of reflects our board and leadership and, and staff. So many from Congo, many from Syria and Iran, from Somalia, Iraq. Those are the majority of populations that we serve. That's quite a diverse, culturally diverse group of clients that you have. Has the pandemic shaped your organization in thinking about what you have to offer or the, you know, the, the services that uh, you try to do? Or has it, I guess, reshaped what empowerment looks like during this time? So the pandemic has affected, you know, our community members exponentially compared to other demographics. Our community members are frontline workers, as they say. Many have the service level jobs that were cut because of the pandemic. And so now they're just trying to get on basic assistance. Our numbers have uh, gone up with people coming in looking for to apply for benefits. And so our office uh, has remained open since the start of the pandemic. We see that that is so needed in our community because a lot of things have gone online and virtual and you have to use the internet to kind of apply for things uh, where if you have a language barrier, you can put your benefits in jeopardy if you answer a question wrong on your own online. And so our staff, who is very diverse in language, are able to, you know, personally assist our, our community members with what with their needs. In the past four months, we've given out over $110,000 in rent and utilities assistance, you know. Um, so we're really working hard trying to be there for our community. With such a diverse, diverse clientele, do you have any particular type of stories that resonate right now um, that really would illustrate what life is like for someone that's been settled in uh, the Southwest during the pandemic time? Yes. So, you know, there was an individual who uh, just got a job, I believe, at a, at a shoe store. And, you know, he was just doing kind of the, the cleaning of, of this center. And the owner actually got COVID and got really ill. And Chain Reaction wasn't able 
to maintain his business and our community member, you know, ended up losing his job, you know, and he wasn't the one who got COVID. It was his, uh, the person he was working for. So it kind of snowballed and he got affected. You know, it's really unfortunate because I know how hard it is to find somewhere to work when you don't understand the culture and the language. And so now he has to find another job in this really tough time. And are there stories of hope uh, right now where you're you're encouraged at this moment by either something one of your clients has done or your board members or or where is there hope at in this moment for your organization or the people that you help? Yeah, you know, I, I think our population, one of the qualities that they have is very resilient. It's a tough time, but, you know, us staying, remaining open and being there for individuals needing help has been very inspiring to see. So, you know, it, it's a resilient environment. And I know that even after this pandemic, like I said, that power you know, that building of power in the refugee and immigrant community will, will happen. If, if someone's listening to the podcast and are interested in helping out, are there, there ways right now that would be more impactful for them to assist? So you can imagine COVID has made people isolated. Now imagine a population who uh, is just trying to integrate into normal society without a pandemic. So imagine even being more isolated. Any person wanting to help and help us with outreach to find immigrants and, and refugees out there that needs assistance, you know, we would love support. I mean, they can call our office at 602-666-0857. In thinking about empowerment, do you see that religion and or spirituality is a particular kind of resource for many of the refugees who have been resettled? I would I would agree, you know, as a person of faith, uh, it's very important, you know, to keep hope and stay faithful and, uh, and you know, whatever you it is that you believe and who you pray to, that you maintain that keeps us grounded and moving forward. Um, so it's very important. Thanks, Dominic, for speaking with me. And this is super interesting, particularly at this moment. Sounds like you're doing absolutely vital work. I know the pandemic has probably disrupted that, but it sounds like you all have uh, really embraced the empowerment uh, of these people. So thank you for your work. Thank you for allowing us to share a, a little bit about what we're doing. We appreciate it. The official Center for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, notes that refugees may experience living arrangements or working conditions that put them at greater risk of getting COVID-19. The website offers ways to assist refugees, including collaborating with resettlement and partner organizations. In this episode, we highlighted two such organizations. For further information about RICE, check out www.riceaz.org. That's www.riceaz.org and www.lss-sw.org provides more information regarding Lutheran Social Services of the Southwest.
Many thanks to our guests in this episode, Connie Phillips and Dominic Bram. This episode was hosted by Terry Shoemaker, produced and edited by Amelia Michelson, graphic designed by Carson Shoemaker, and administered by Eli Tabot. This podcast for the Plague Year is a compliment to the Journal for the Plague Year, a project of Catherine O'Donnell and Mark Tabot, both faculty at Arizona State University's School for Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies.